Welcome to the Dwell Church Sermon Archive. Dwell is a family defined by the love of God and committed to giving it away. Here is this week's message. I think it's pretty obvious why we chose this passage for Mother's Day. I'm sure you guys have already picked up on it. Uh, Moms in the room, the lesson is simple. Uh, If some wizard kings ever come to visit your baby, make sure they don't tell any shifty Jewish kings about it, all right? Or non-Jewish kings, okay? That's the lesson. It's a pretty easy takeaway, right? No, uh, we really don't go all that hard for Mother's Day uh, here at Dwell Church. I'm sorry about that. Moms in the room, we like you. You're great. Uh, it's just kind of strange. I, I was talking to Sarah about it. It's like weird. We like we observe some of like the liturgical calendar, you know, like some ancient Christian traditions like Lent that we just got done experiencing and stuff like that. We were talking about it. There's probably like more churches in America that just go absolutely nuts for Mother's Day than experience all of the stuff that the church has been experiencing for hundreds of years. And that's messed up. And here's why. Uh, back in the 1800s, there was a lady, a mom, who was like, you know what? Our country is really messed up right now. I'm going to start a day where, I kid you not, in 1868, Union soldiers, or mothers of Union soldiers and mothers of Confederate soldiers can get together and have friendship. That was the first Mother's Day. So then uh, that lady gets old and passes away. Her daughter, remember she was a mother, so her daughter uh, decides to do a campaign to push this, to be like, we should have a national day for moms where we can join together and celebrate our heroic mothers. And she does it. And then over the years, it gets passed, right? She campaigns for it. Over the years, uh, people start selling a lot of extra chocolates on that day. People start uh, selling more and more greeting cards. In fact, phone records would show that uh, phone calls go up by 37% today, 37% higher than any other day throughout the entire year. And then by the end of this lady's life that started Mother's Day, she was campaigning actively against it. She was going before uh, the powers that be and be like, we have got to get rid of Mother's Day because it has become too commercial. She straight up Charlie Brown to this thing, right? She's like, no more. This is not good anymore. I've got to get rid of it. So in honor of her sacrifice, that's why we don't really, really go nuts on it. Uh, also because you forget it every year, right? Like it's just the week before you walk into Target and you're like, oh no, what have I done? It's too late. And that's what Target is for. Anyway, uh, I'm not going to talk about that too, too much. Um, Here's what I do want to talk about today. And uh, it's actually quite serious and it's actually caused me uh, a lot of, I think, distress in preparing for uh, this message over the past couple weeks. I believe that there is a real danger for us in the church living today uh, that this beautiful quasi-Christmas story actually shows to us. And it is simply this, that you have got to be careful who you listen to, especially when they claim to agree with you. You've got to be careful who you listen to, especially when they claim to agree with you. Uh, Now, uh, you just heard the text as it was in Matthew, and we're actually going to put, I think, the entire thing up on the screen here in just a second. Um, And I am going to give you like a full paraphrase of the entire thing just in case you missed anything. So our story begins with some weird wizard kings from the east. If you were here this past Advent, I did a deep dive on how strange these guys are. You can find that sermon online if you're really curious. Uh, They are non-Jewish people who were following this star. They were strange guys. They go to find this new king. They naturally went to the palace in the area. They figured that's where they would find a king. And instead, they find that Herod is the king there. Herod says to them, please, when you find him, let me know so I can come and worship him too. So the wise men go out and they find Jesus. 
And they give him worship, and they give him extravagant gifts. And then they were told in a dream not to go back by Herod on their way out. Then Joseph had a dream that told him to take Jesus to Egypt. And Herod killed all of the children who would have been Jesus' age, who could have been Jesus in this town. And then after Herod died, Joseph was led by another dream to take his family back. And in classic Matthew style, there were at least three prophecies fulfilled. I mean, by the end of this book, you guys are going to be like, come on, Matthew, dial it back. And then he closes it with, and therefore he would be called a Nazarene, which I think is the ancient Jewish equivalent of it. And they all lived happily ever after, except for a bunch of kids and Herod. They did not live happily ever after. So uh, that is the end. Of, is that too dark? I got some kind of, oh, especially not on Mother's Day. Come on, man. I'm sorry. Now, <clears throat> at Christmas time, uh, this is one of the hardest ones, I think, to shoehorn into the Christmas story. You know, we kind of get there and we're like, all right, so wise men, uh, they make a cute part of the nativity, right? They're more important than Joseph in there, as I've already ranted about and will rant about to my dying day. Uh, but today we're talking about mom, sorry. Um, the wise men, we shoehorn it in there uh, and we kind of go with this idea about like, this is a story about searching for and worshiping. Worshiping Jesus, right? This is like the Christmas part of the story where we're going to talk about these cute little wise men and how they're on the hunt for Jesus. Uh, I also, again, don't really know why this is a, a Christmas story. I mean, Jesus was young, but do you see an actual age here? I mean, who's to say whether he was a baby or a toddler or even a preteen? If they started following a star when he was born, how old would they be when, or he be when they actually got there? Then it says that they stayed at Herod's for a little bit, right? They were there for a minute. He, might not, he at least wouldn't have been a newborn. It's also a weird story because you've got these non-Jewish weirdos who just followed a star looking for a baby king. That's kind of a strange thing to do. Uh, also, I hate to break it, but while I'm just tearing down this entire Christmas story, did you see anywhere that there were three of them? Where did that even come from, right? This is just a strange, strange, strange story. And there's so many weird, weird details into it that what we often do when we read this story at Christmas time is we skip right over the Herod part. We're like, okay, so here's these three, three strange guys, and they're going to find Jesus and all this stuff. And also, as a side note, Herod's kind of not nice, right? We don't like that guy. So anyway, Merry Christmas. And uh, then we go for the hot chocolate, and then we just move on with our lives. But surely, there is more here. I mean, Matthew was not conceiving one day, I'm sure. I am sure. He had no idea what was going to happen to us in the year 2022 as it regards Christmas, right? He could not prepare for how we celebrate Christmas. He had no idea of Santa Claus. He had no idea of, uh, of all the different things that we would buy and sell, all of this craziness, right? So he was writing this story to tell us something special and important for our lives, and I think what I want to do actually here as we like look and ask ourselves the question, like what more is there to see from this story? I want to like shift the focus a little bit and actually talk about Herod for a minute. I want to flip it and just sort of take a deep dive and say, who is this guy and why is what he is doing so very bad? Now, did you see what he did that was like dastardly and evil? We can see this in verse 8, actually. In verse 8 uh, of chapter 2, it says, And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child, and when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship 
him. He says, let me know when you find this Jesus, because I want to worship him too. I want to be just like you guys. Now, later on in the story, that proves to not necessarily be true, right? He shows that later when he kills all of the Jesus-aged kids. But here's this guy saying, hey, let me know when you find this Jesus guy, because I want to come and worship him too. And you know what I hate the most about this that really just like got embedded in my brain that I couldn't shake? These wise men, uh, as strange and as mysterious as they may be, seem infinitely genuine, right? Like they seem like they are just on a hunt for Jesus. That's all we really know about them. We don't even need to know anything else about them. We just need to know that they came a long way. They were looking for Jesus, and they're trying to find him, and they go on the hunt for Jesus. They want to worship God on earth. They want to worship a newborn king. And this guy in a position of authority steps in and tries to come alongside them and be like, hey, I want the same things you want. You know, I want to be on your team. I'm a team player. Let me know about this Jesus so I can come and worship him too. All the while, his intentions were actually to destroy this Jesus. Now, it reminds me, ironically enough, of a Christmas movie. I know. uh, What are the odds? I almost lost the whole thing there. Uh, what are the odds? It reminds me of a Christmas movie. Uh, you guys have seen it. It's, uh, it's Die Hard. Have you guys seen this Christmas movie, actually? That's right. I'm Team Die Hard Christmas movie. I'm right there. All right. Um, there's a moment when Hans Gruber, a.k.a. Alan Rickman, who in this particular scene, yeah, rest in peace, uh, was being an Englishman, as he was born to be, who was playing a person with a German accent, who in the movie was pretending to be a person with an American accent, and he sneaks up on Bruce Willis, or they sort of bump into each other, and he pretends to be one of the hostages so he can shoot Bruce Willis in the back. Now, in A Christmas Miracle, it doesn't happen, spoilers, uh, and Bruce Willis is the hero, and Alan Rickman falls very slowly out of a giant building. This is what it reminds me of, though, that moment where he's, like, sitting there, and he's like, oh, yeah, just little old me, I'm a hostage, let me help you take out these bad guys, and then he is the chief bad guy. That's exactly what Herod is doing in this moment. Herod uh, is uh, historically remembered as not a great guy. Uh, There's this historian named Josephus, and he probably has, uh, along with a very cool name, some of the most uh, contemporary writings to the time of Jesus. And uh, he was also writing in Palestine. He was a Jewish historian. And so uh, a lot of times when we're comparing biblical text and we're trying to figure out like what people would have thought and what people would have done back in those days, uh, Josephus is a lot of times where we uh, turn to first. Uh, we find in Josephus and in other sources uh, that Herod actually had uh, his sons strangled. Some of his sons strangled because he feared that they would overthrow him. That's how paranoid this guy was about losing his rule. He had 10 wives, 10 different wives, but he liked one of them the best, and she was uh, his Jewish wife. And uh, he apparently uh, loved her the most, and so he said that when he was out traveling, he would leave orders with his soldiers, and he would say, hey, if I get killed while I'm out traveling, I need you to kill her too immediately because she's my favorite wife, which I don't really directly understand. Uh, Ironically enough, this same exact wife that he married, uh, who was the most beautiful and favorite of all of his wives, he actually married her to appease the Jews uh, because he was ruling over them, and then after she argued with him too much, he had her tried and had her killed. This guy uh, was very, very hyper-paranoid, very, very worried about any sort of, uh, any sort of way that uh, anyone could step in on his rule. And the ancient historian Josephus actually recorded his death in this way, uh, which should tell you, just in graphic detail, how little Josephus thinks of him. 
Uh, it says in Josephus's Antiquities, it says, For a fire glowed in him slowly, which did not so much appear to, to the touch outwardly as it augmented his pains inwardly, for it brought upon him a vehement appetite to eating. His entrails were also exculcerated, and the chief violence of his pain lay on his colon. Here's the best part. An aqueous and transparent liquor also settled itself about his feet, and like matter afflicted him at the bottom of his belly. What this means, and the reason why you need to know this, is that his paranoia led to the most fierce case of IBS that there has ever been, and it actually killed him, I think. Uh, It was rough, right? And Josephus goes out of his way to be like, look at this terrible way that this guy actually died. Now, that may be neither here nor there, but it is fascinating. It's also disgusting. And I know that some of you may not have great relationships with your mom and are already thinking, like, what are we going to talk about on the phone call this afternoon? And I have just given you a topic that I am sure you had not thought about. Uh, Anyway, universally considered a bad guy. So Josephus is not a Christian writer, and he's writing about Josephus, and he's letting us know that this guy was an awful guy. And in our story today... And to sort of reread even our entire story today, it is now less a story about these interesting wise men and more a story of an evil man trying to co-opt some people's honest attempts to get to Jesus for his own selfish gain. So what does this mean for us? I believe that on your journey to Jesus... There will be people who pretending to be your friend who will actually try to lead you astray. Just like the wise men on their journey to Jesus, on your journey to Jesus, there will be people pretending to be your friend who will actually try to lead you astray. This is where I think it gets a little bit sticky and kind of strange. Uh, if you, uh, if you want to sort of talk to them, I have actually talked to a few different people. We have like a sermon meeting, and then even last Sunday we talked about this text with some folks I was out to lunch with. Uh, and even before the sort of chaotic political and cultural events of this past week, uh, this was like something that I feel like God laid, to me, laid on my heart over this text of just sort of the, wrapping our minds around this idea that there would be people trying to co-opt honest and authentic journeys towards Jesus and actually use that against us as believers. And can I tell you that as I've been thinking about that and trying to sort of ask God, like, where do we actually see this? Is this something that actually happens? Does it, does it happen to me? Does it happen to others? Like, this week has been a chaotic week. If you've been, like, following the news at all, it has just been just been fraught with stuff. And, and honestly, it's been very, very difficult to write. I hope this sermon does not last two hours. I have 12, I have 12 pages worth of stuff. Uh, I'm going to not use it all, but I cannot remember, and Rayanna can vouch for this, I cannot remember another sermon where I had so much more in like the cutting room floor section of just like extras, like here's stuff that I'm not going to use. Here's stuff I probably shouldn't say. Uh, here's all kind of stuff, because I want to be kind of like very delicate with this. I have no interest and in fact feel a conviction that it is not my responsibility to get up here and tell you how how you should vote. It's not my job to tell you who you should vote for or how you should feel about X, Y, Z sort of political opinion. Uh, I trust the Holy Spirit and his calling on each and every one of your lives to be able to sort that out. But there is something that is happening in the life of Christianity that I think, I think uh, this speaks directly to. And honestly, it scares me to death. 
I am worried that Christians today are so excited to hear someone agree with them that they will very often follow them blindly. Uh, we all know what happened in 2016, right? Um, except for Rayanna, she was too young. Uh, <laughs> This is not a joke, actually. When we were discussing this sermon, uh, she was the one that said, especially in this day and age. And I thought, no, no, Rihanna, you're not, you have not seen this day and age as, like a grizzled old man like I am. Anyway, to give you some modern history, uh, a reality TV star and real estate mogul who has a flexible relationship with the truth and who sleeps with porn stars used the Bible as a prop to activate his base and many Christians that at that point decided to hold their nose and follow him based on the now potentially fulfilled promise of, return, of overturning Roe versus Wade. I just blazed right through that. I felt like it was one of those things where if you go fast enough, uh, it's fine, you know? Uh, I very, very seldom will talk about just like actual like political people, but I think it's like important for this moment because here you have a guy, uh, here you have a guy very obviously uh, trying to sort of activate a group of people that, that would claim to be Christian and who probably does not necessarily share most of their values or at least most of their uh, sort of character touch points. The things that most people that would call themselves a follower of Jesus care a lot about, he does not share all of them, but he does share some of them. And in fact, I, I remember having lots and lots of conversations, and, and uh, I'm sure you did as well, leading up to that like 2016 election, where people were like, I don't know, I mean, he's, he's going to fight for like pro-life rights, and I'm about pro-life rights, so I'm going to like, maybe I can just like hold my nose from some of the stuff that I don't like, and get behind this guy, and be like, I don't really love this, but I think I'm more aligned with him than I am with the other side, so I think I'm going to like have to like jump into this. And then we fast Fast forward years and years later, and there are literally churches. I heard a story about this where they were interviewing actual people who referred to their churches as Trump churches. They said, hey, we're, we're a Trump church here, which is just a disgusting adjective to ever put on your church. And not just because it is him. It is a disgusting adjective to ever put anyone's name in front of it other than Jesus Christ. And now... Uh, that the Supreme Court re released or leaked uh, that ruling about Roe versus Wade. Now we have to decide, was it good? Was it bad? Uh, I don't know. And truth be told, the other reason why this is so sticky to talk about, I don't know Trump's heart and all of this. He might actually be a follower of Jesus. So there's, there's just no way for us to know. Oddly enough... A few years later, his replacement was an active and practicing Catholic uh, who has had shifted and varying views on this very topic, on the topic of abortion, and now sort of stands apart from uh, the broader Catholic Church just on this very specific thing. And so, man, as a Christian, do you not just sort of like, I, I don't, is everyone feeling the sort of like weird tension and discomfort? And I know this is Mother's Day and I'm leaning right into it. Let's just all feel uncomfortable and weird about ourselves. <clears throat> and then in watching everything that's been the fallout over this past week, all I know is that half the people who are marching in pro-life rallies uh, uh, very often don't look anything like Jesus and half of our supposedly Christian nation believes uh, that if a woman gets pregnant and does not want that child, then that child should die. 
Uh, <clears throat> I really don't like talking about all of this. Uh, and honestly, uh, you know, there may be some of you out there who have differing views and opinions on Roe versus Wade and on all of that whole sort of thing. And I'm trying not to sort of get too deep into the weeds into this. Uh, in addition to all of this, I had like probably four different little touch points, either articles that I read or conversations that I had over this past week uh, over different things where it's like Christians trying to decide uh, how they feel about various cultural and political topics. And I am convinced that more so than having Jesus or the Bible as our primary influence, that there is a whole host of people that are either Christian or sort of associated with Christianity or adjacent to Christianity or, or, or whatever it is that are working very, very hard to adopt you to whatever their viewpoint is, to try and bring you into what they believe, to maybe uh, get behind you and stand with you on one topic so that then they can bring in this other topic. I mean, we've all seen how that happens, right? Like one party is like, you're pro-life, right? And you're like, yeah, yeah, I want to be pro-life. I want to stand up for the rights of the unborn. And they're like, you don't believe in climate change either, right? And you're like, I don't know if those are related, but all right. And then if you like took a study of like Americans, how strange would it be that we would like, you know, well, most of the people that believe in, you know, less gun control also don't believe in climate change. Like those are unrelated. We should be like an even uh, distribution on those things, right? Like, can't we just have freedom to choose? I'm really ranting about topics now. Uh, how strange is it that the one party that is like, hey, I, I kind of think black people uh, are getting murdered by the police more often. And the other party's like, Meh not really sure, but then uh, that party is like, also, if you believe in that, then you have to pick up our whole other host of like social justice warrior moments, right? Like you've got to like take this whole part and parcel. And that is the thing that is being pressed on each and every one of us. To say that if you agree with someone, then there's this infinite pressure to continue agreeing with them more and more and more. And in a world that is increasingly tribal, in a world that is increasingly fractured, we as Christians, if you're anything like me, are starting to feel sort of like left out and left behind. We're starting to look around at the world and ask the question, like, where do I even fit in? And the temptation there, the temptation that we have to fight it's to find people that are sort of on our side and assume that they're completely on our side. Assume that people who might befriend us and try and uh, champion the same things that we would are actually wholly there for our good and for our benefit. Right now, Christians, not out there Christians, but even in here Christians, are so regularly, myself included, being duped. And as a result of it, we're being sidelined from the mission of God because we are following the wrong people. There's that celebrity that is so refreshing because he speaks the truth. He tells it like it is, you know, so he's worth following, right? Even though his life doesn't look anything like Jesus. There's that traveling intellectual who doesn't even like claim to be a Christian, but we as Christians like really like him a lot, you know, because he agrees with a lot of our stuff, you know, and we like that he's like bold and able to say it. Can't tell you the most terrifying example of this, that most of the people that sort of bought wholesale into QAnon were actually professing, confessing believers, followers of Jesus. The point of all of this 
is to say that we have got to, we've got to sort of wake up to this very thing happening. We have got to be a little bit more careful. In modern day America, it's not an option anymore to just sort of be sort of blindly trusting. It's no longer an option to be naive. You and I are being taught and coached and cajoled and slowly catechized, if you want to even use that word, to believe in many lies. The America that I grew up in was one, uh, wow, that sentence sounds like a curmudgeonly old man. The America that I grew up in was one where I was led to believe that the biggest threat to Christianity were atheists who were showing up and saying, hey, God's not real. Let's do some drugs, man. Like, let's get, let's do it, right? That's what I was scared of. Now the biggest threat that we face, I think, is the person who comes alongside us on our journey because we're going the same way. And all of a sudden we find ourselves on a path that we never meant to take on a path where we don't even know how Jesus feels about where we're going. We haven't even asked. Because somebody comes along and links arms with us on, a, on that way. And slowly, without us even noticing. And here's the best part, too. You know, uh, a lot of you may be sitting back and thinking, like, well, I'm safe from, I'm insulated from all of this because I don't watch the news, you know? Like, I'm not really a part of that, so I'm not getting sucked into all of this drama. Man, it's not the case. If you watch TV, if you watch YouTube, if you listen to a podcast, man, it is just everywhere. And it is slow, and it is dangerous, and it is taking us somewhere where we don't want to be. We don't have the option to be naive anymore. We don't have the option to be passive anymore. So here's what I'm going to say to sort of wrap all of this up. And again, it is probably not the inspiring Mother's Day sermon that you've come for. It is simply this, trust others less, trust yourself less, trust God more. Let's begin with trust others less. The beauty of this idea is that it is not new. In fact, when Jesus was first sending out his disciples, this is what he says to them in Matthew chapter 10. He says, Behold, I am sending you out as a sheep in the midst of wolves. So be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. He says, Behold, my children, my friend, I am sending you out among people who are going to be different from you. Behold, good Christian, I am sending you out among people who don't believe like you. Behold, good Christian, I am sending you out among people who are going to be opposed to you. Still later, Jesus says this in Matthew chapter 7, verses 15 through 20. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every tree, every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus you will recognize them by their fruits. Jesus is saying, beware, look out. There will be false prophets. There will be people who are mostly Christian, mostly godly, mostly like the things that you confess you believe. 
And he's saying that you will have to do the work of discernment. You'll have to do the work where you're actually looking at their lives and seeing if they are bearing the right fruit. In the first passage I read, he said, you are going to have to be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. Other translations might say you're going to have to be shrewd as serpents. Maybe in another America, or maybe even just a glamorized version of America that we like to believe in, we fooled ourselves into thinking that we did not have to be wise anymore. We fooled ourselves into thinking that we did not have to be shrewd. That maybe we could just focus on our own innocence as doves and not put the wisdom or shrewdness into it. But you can't do that anymore. You have to approach the world and approach people who might come to you in sheep's clothing. Approach uh, prophets who come to you saying that they know what Jesus is telling you. Approach even people like me who would dare stand up on a stage and say to you, I believe that this is what the word of God says. You have to approach them with an honest evaluation. You have to approach them with discernment. You have to approach them with a, a little bit less trust. And I know it's uncomfortable. Like at the end of the day, uh, this is not something that just sort of inspires us to feel better, right? Like wouldn't you feel so much better if it was easy to just be like, I don't know, if they sound nice, then you could probably trust them, right? Like we can just sort of get behind anyone and, you, and it sort of takes a lot of that responsibility off of you. Man, we love that. But I'm telling you, this is one of those things in, in life that you sort of learn when you're old and curmudgeonly like me. There are some things that you want to be the case so desperately, but just aren't. And trying to pretend as if they are is just not going to serve anyone. We must be more wise. Secondly, trust yourself less. You have to beware the Herod in others. You have to be looking out for the, kick, the wicked king who is going to try and take you on a journey that you didn't want to go to that's going to try and co-opt your journey to Jesus. But you also have to beware the Herod inside yourself. For as much danger as there is without, there is also danger within. There is a king inside of you, a little king who honestly believes that he ought to be ruler of the universe. If you don't think so, think about the next time, think about the last time that you were upset. And in that moment, ask that king, do you really deserve to be better, treated better than this? Do you really deserve a lot better than this? Are you really more important than this? Do you deserve that that house that you're jealous of? Do you deserve to be made, or do you deserve not to be made to wait in this line? Like, are you really, really that important? And that king in that moment will come to meet you because he will confidently assert that you deserve so much better than this. He will assert, I am in control. The world works for me. This little king inside of you, that king, like Herod, wants to discount, take out, destroy, and discredit any other king that arises. It makes us, then, fools in front of the true king of the universe. That king constantly asserting its dominance makes us fools in front of the one and true king of the universe because that king will often fight good sense, fight the only righteousness that has ever existed, which comes from Jesus Christ. 
the book of Proverbs says this in verse 28, or chapter 28, verse 26. It says, whoever trusts in his own mind is a fool, but he who walks in wisdom will be delivered. Chapter 3, verses 5 through 8 say this, Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him. He will make your, straight your paths. Be not wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. It will be healing to your flesh and refreshment to your bones. Which leads us to the final point. If we are to trust others less, if we are to trust ourselves less, then we are to trust God more. This is not some sort of like secret formula, and I'm sorry that this is not a more like tweetable phrase or something like that. There's nothing magic about this. If you want an antidote to the competing realities that are constantly invading your mind, if you want an alternative to the competing viewpoints that are all over the place and that are trying to co-opt you to their own mission and vision of the world, then you must trust God more. Do you remember the wise men? They had a decision to make. And I, I, I think we sort of glazed right past this because it was like one sort of like narrative sentence in this middle of this thing. But they had this moment where they knew... Uh, they knew that Herod had asked them to come back and swing back by the palace, and they were going to tell him about Jesus, and then he was going to reward them. He's the king of this land. He's very important. He's very influential. He's sort of representing Rome in that moment. I mean, there's no telling what they missed out on by actually following after this dream that told them to not swing back by Herod. Can you imagine the conviction that it would have required? Like, what if they thought to themselves, well, maybe we'll swing back by here. Maybe I'll send him on a merry chase and Jesus will be fine. Or they thought, like, I don't know, it's one random baby, but I could be, you know, made into a governor. I might get more power or authority. I might could even, you know, gain some sort of treasure as a result of this. Think of all the influence I could have if we could just swing back by Herod's place. Imagine the conviction that it required. More than the other voices that are coming at you in this world, we must learn to trust God more. And in lieu of a dream that tells you where to go, I think we only have a few options of how to actually do this. Three things that I think God has given us to help us to understand where he wants us to go. First is the word of God. The Bible is the most trustworthy place where you might be able to find out how God thinks and feels and believes about a certain situation. And I say thinks and feels as if it's like, well, God has an opinion and everybody else has their opinion. But instead, God, the creator of the universe, the very founder and former of reality, is the one who sets what is good and what is evil. Doesn't even have to decide. That sort of emanates out from who he is. Who he is is good, and things that oppose him are evil. And the Bible is the way that he has chosen to convey that to you and to me. I had sort of a terrifying thought uh, this week as I was prepping for this. <clears throat> I was at a, a conference actually a couple weeks ago, and there was this uh, old pastor that I always thought was kind of fuddy-duddy, you know, like I've never really been a big like fan, and you know, he's just kind of, 
he's a little like kind of heated sometimes and and I'm just he's just sort of like not my guy and he said uh somebody asked him like uh what do you need to do to be a pastor he, he'd been a pastor for like 50 years or something crazy like that and he said what do you need to do to have that kind of longevity in, in ministry and he said uh well first off you need to study your bible for one hour each day and that was he just kind of like left it there and everybody in the room was just sort of like slumping down in their seats. It was a bunch of pastors, and we're all like, hmm, an hour each day. And it made me think, actually, as I was like prepping for this and thinking about all the different voices that are speaking into our lives, like how much time, if you were to just do a time audit, how much time are you actually spending uh, with the Word of God, a message that the Creator of the universe wrote for and to you? How much time are we spending on that versus all of the millions of other voices that are in our ears, that are before our eyes, all the other things that we are using to feed ourselves? I even thought about this, and uh, you know, like this is kind of a scary thought as well. Think about all the things that you watch or listen to or read or whatever that are sort of like standing in opposition to Jesus at some level that are like actually working against him. We all know what it is, right? You watch that TV show and you're like, this is, this is not holy at all. I even think about this. I love, I love Jerry Seinfeld. He's, he probably takes up more real estate in my mind than anybody else. And that is a terrifying thing because he thinks uh, the very fact that I am up here talking to you about this ancient book, he finds that foolish. I've heard him talk about it before. He finds it absurd that people would even follow a religion. God is a punchline not the creator of the universe. And he takes up so much real estate in my mind. What about the people that you kind of like are like, well, they're mostly Christian. They mostly have my good ideas at heart. They're like mostly good. How much real estate are they taking up in your mind? How about this? How much real estate in your mind are people taking up that are believers but are trying to tell you what the Bible says about a certain thing? How much... From the word of God, are we getting secondhand from somebody else? You know, disturbingly few of you come up to me afterwards and tell me that I had an exegetically incorrect sermon. I want it more. Give me the emails, right? If you're truly listening, it should be happening. You know, I'm up here talking about fallible and broken human beings, and I am also up here being a fallible and broken human being. <clears throat> the Word of God must be a primary source for us. It ought to be a light unto our path. It ought to be the, bread, or the thing that we need more than bread to sustain us. Secondly, the second thing that we turn to is the Spirit of God. The Holy Spirit is the one that actually illuminates God's word for us and allows us to see the truth that God has for us in it. That gap that exists, you know, it's kind of, if you're, if you're a thinking person, especially if you're like a postmodern thinking person, then you're thinking to yourself like, well, you said to trust myself less, and uh, every time I read scripture, if I'm supposed to trust it more, I'm actually bringing myself to the table, right? We're always reading through lenses. Uh, we're always bringing our presuppositions to the table. And so if we're supposed to trust ourselves, Left, how in the world can we trust anything that we read from the Bible? How can we actually trust our own interpretation of what the Bible says to us? And the answer is very simply that the Holy Spirit is there to stand in this gap. The Holy Spirit is there to illuminate the Word of God to you. The Holy Spirit is there to convict you of ways in which you err from the Word of God. 
Finally, the third thing that we can use is actually the people of God. And I know, I know I just said don't trust me, and now I'm saying you should trust me. Uh, I am saying that uh, this is why it is important to live your Christian life in community. The easiest way to get taken so, so far off the path is to think that you are the only one that is walking down it, to think that you have to do it alone, to think that when you read the Bible and whatever you see in there, even if it's confusing or hard, you just need to Google something to find the answer. No, that is not the way that we were meant to live. That is why a local church just like this one and just like thousands and millions of other ones across the planet is a necessary thing in the life of believers. I try not to say this to them very much because I want my community group, my dwell group, to think that I'm like very uh, important and special and, and smarter than all of them. Uh, but I very often am reading scripture alongside them and we are discussing it. And I am seeing things that the Holy Spirit has never showed me that I am not smart enough to figure out, that my own life experience has not showed me to see. And then I walk away thinking to myself, like, God, without these people, without our sometimes like dumb discussion about things, we're in Samuel right now, and I cannot tell you how many goofy things we have gotten lost on, and in the midst of it, God is actually using it to reveal the truth of his word to me. You know, if you are sort of mapping out real estate in your brain, real estate of media that you intake, a healthy dose of the people of God, of other people to sort of come alongside you in this journey who are trying just like you to find and follow Jesus is going to be a necessary and helpful thing. It's chaotic and scary to be alive right now at some level. I, uh, in addition to all the other stuff I've named, uh, I listened to a, uh, a debate about a Christian topic. Two pastors that I love and trust very much were sort of debating this thing, and uh, I won't sort of, I don't need to bring any other hot button issues up, so I'm just going to uh, not even talk about it specifically. <clears throat> and I don't know what happened. I had uh, kind of, I, I don't know what it was, but I just sort of broke out in tears uh, as a result of the break or of the debate, and, I, and it wasn't even necessarily what the debate it was about. Uh, it reminded me of, of Fahrenheit 451, actually. Uh, I know the, the illusions are getting random. We're just we're way off now. I'm leaning into it. In that book, though, it's a bunch of scary sci-fi. They're burning books. You know, we don't like that. They're doing drugs and watching giant TVs and stuff like that. And we're like, ah, that's probably not good. Really big on the anti-burning books thing. Can I tell you the other thing that he brings to his dystopian future? The fact that they have cars that are going so fast that they kill people all the time. And to him, writing way back in the day, Ray Bradbury, I think, was writing this book, and he thought like, here's how we're gonna go really, really messed up, right? People are going to start burning books. We're going to kill knowledge. That's not going to be good. People are going to start, you know, uh, like watching TV all the time and just sort of losing themselves to it. That's not going to be good. And then he said, people are going to be driving so fast that there's going to be so many, so many terrible traffic deaths, and that's not going to be good. And that is like a part of our lives now. Like, when was the last time somebody came to you and said, hey, maybe we shouldn't drive our cars so fast because a lot of people happen to die. People are like, well, I don't know. I got to get to the grocery store, right? I got to get to work on time. I don't know what to do about cars. I don't want to get lost on that. What I do know that terrifies me to no end, though, 
is that it is scary to think about the things that we might have become comfortable with in modern living that are so far from the heart of Jesus. And I'm not saying just for cars, but we have wholesale on every side of the political spectrum become far too comfortable with how many of us die. Unnecessarily. Whether it is from abortion, which seems like the topic of the day for Christians right now. Whether it is from wholesale violence that exists in our culture and in our community. Maybe even the death penalty that so many people who are opposed to killing a child in the womb are in favor of. It's terrifying. It feels like there's not a right answer. There's nowhere to be, there's no way to decide, there's no way to, there's no sort of place where we can be and feel comfortable even in discussing this with friends, even in just sort of the discomfort I feel in discussing it right now, it's chaotic and it is terrifying and there is, it feels like there is not a right path to take. <clears throat> when in doubt, all that we can do all that we can do when we are in doubt and we have no idea where to go is to look to Jesus. Look to Jesus. In the midst of how terrifying it is to live right now, we must look to Jesus. I actually thought about this old song. <clears throat> This past week, it's been in my head the entire week. It says, turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face. And here's the thing that I'm hoping for and praying for for you and for me in this moment and living right now. It says, and the things of earth will grow strangely dim. In the light of his glory and grace. If you, like me, are feeling adrift in this world, look to Jesus. If you're feeling scared for the future, look to Jesus. If you are feeling tempted towards strength as the only way to solve the problems that you're seeing in this world, look to Jesus. If you are feeling powerless to do anything about the problems of this world, look to Jesus. If you have no idea even the very next step that you ought to be taking, look to Jesus. He ought to be the first and only voice that we allow to speak into our lives. He ought to be the only one that we want to impress. He ought to be the only one that we want to please. Maybe we're lost in the chaos and the confusion of what it takes to be alive right now. 
because we were trying to please the wrong king. Whether it's the Herods trying to co-opt our journey towards Jesus, whether it's the little Herods inside of ourselves that we are so desperately trying to please and to satisfy. When instead, we ought to be trying to please the one and only king who's king over the entire universe, whose authority is unquestionable, who has the power and the only righteous authority to be able to set the world to rights to the way that he wants it to be. And that exact same king is the very same one who decided to step down, live a human life to bear each and every one of your sins and my sins to the cross and die an unrighteous and guiltless death for you and for me. Turn your eyes upon this Jesus, this King. And I believe he'll be faithful to show us exactly what we need to know, exactly when we need to know it. Would you guys pray with me? God, we are lost and confused. God, we have followed after other masters. God, we have chased after other human beings and sought to make their lives our own. God, we have sought to make them king over our own lives. God, even more so, we have tried to become little kings ourselves. God, God, we want to be in control of the universe. My sinful heart desires to be able to make the world the way that I want it to be, God that I ask for you now for your forgiveness. God, you are the only one true king. I pray for myself. Pray for those joined with us today. I pray for those that are not here with us today. I pray for Christians, a part of the church across the entire planet, God, that you would keep us from temptation, God. You would keep us far away from lies, You would keep us far away from those who would abuse the beautiful things that you have told us in your word. You would take us far away from those who would co-opt our journey to find you so that they might use it to their own gain, God. Pray that you would lead us away from that, God, and that pleasing you would be our only goal and hope in life. Looking towards you would be the only way that we try and figure out how we think and feel about something. God, that your standard would be better than our standard, even in our own hearts and minds, God. That is our prayer. We place our lives, place our culture, we place our country, place our entire world in your hands, God, knowing that you are the one, the only one who can do what is right with it. God, we love you and we trust you with this in all things. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening. We hope it brought you closer to Jesus and more in touch with the world around you. Being a Christian in today's culture can be hard. Fortunately, he gives us the gift of community through his church. So we would love to invite you to join us for one of our Sunday morning gatherings or for one of our weekly small groups. All the details you need can be found on our website, 
dwelldenver.org. <laughs>